Oh, Having Sousa. heart palpitations. Dave, <laughs> are you nervous? I'm so nervous, but no, it's pressure builds diamonds. So here we go. Welcome to Money Baggage, a financial literacy podcast brought to you by Hightower Advisors to spread knowledge about something that affects us all, money. We're your hosts, Joe Franco. And I'm Zave. And we're on an investigation to learn how to strategically deal with our money baggage. We're going to be covering everything from debt to savings to credit cards to growing our own money mindset. Knowledge as well. So let's handle all this money baggage. Why are we doing this podcast to begin with? Honestly, Joe, I feel like one of the biggest reasons we need to have these conversations. We need to have these podcasts because money is just uh, such a touchy subject in so many areas. You know what I mean? So I think it's our job here to uh, spread some knowledge and kind of ease the tension of talking about money. So here we are. I feel like everybody just tenses up. Like we all need to book massages, but that costs money too. Like the minute you start talking about money, it's like stress hits. I wanted to make a podcast called Money Baggage because I think money is one of those things that ironically rules everyone on this planet unless you're you know living completely off the grid which is highly unlikely and yet we really don't talk about it so this is why we're doing this podcast coming from a background where money wasn't talked about i inherited a lot of money baggage that i'm actively on a daily basis trying to rewrite how about you do you feel like you have money baggage that you inherited or that you created oh absolutely i think the word inheritance is such a funny word because it's like a lot of people are inheriting money and money baggage. Some people are just inheriting the baggage part of that. Um, and I guess you could say the baggage part on my end too. So uh, <laughs> I'm excited to talk. <laughs> I know, right? It's like some people have trust funds. We have baggage. But you know what? It's okay because it's a learning opportunity. And this is why we're talking about these things on this podcast. We also need to kind of introduce ourselves, right? Because people might not know you, might not know me. I want to get to know you better. We're going to be hanging out for at least 12 episodes, hopefully more. <laughs> but who are you, Zave? Tell us what your money baggage is. Totally. So I'm Xavier. I uh, recently moved to Chicago about a year ago, Joe. I graduated from college maybe two years ago, where I was a you know struggling college student making no money, studying every day, uh, to being a grown-up that uh, has a job, which sounds so weird. And it comes with even more money baggage than sometimes the college students they've had. But uh, here we are. And you didn't just get any job. You got a job at one of the top wealth advising companies in the country, which is wild because you're at the source of financial literacy. Like you, what an, what an opportunity. Yeah, it's been great. It's been great to learn about money, talk about money. But let's talk more about you, Joe. You have a little bit uh, more stories to tell than me about money baggage potentially. So uh, what's up? So yes, I inherited an interesting story. I have a classic immigrant moving to America story. I was born in Rio in Brazil, and I should not be speaking English right now because I was not programmed to, and like no one in my family was American. But when I was five years old, my mom moved my two siblings and I to Connecticut of all places, a very all-American town. And I grew up looking like the brown girl in a sea of Americans with this big curly hair that no one knew if it was real or not. It's my hair, y'all. And I just grew up differently. We grew up differently. We lived in a very wealthy county. But my mom was actually the nanny and babysitter for a family. So we lived in this duality. We went to a really good school system. But at the same time, my mom was taking us to clean houses on the weekend with her. We saw mansions, but, you know, I had a bottle of cleaner in my hand. So that was my childhood. And I had such a great opportunity. I see it as an opportunity because I was able to see what an office building looked like 
when I was cleaning it. And I remember thinking one day I will work in an office like this and I will treat the cleaner so nicely because I was the daughter of the cleaner, you know, and that was how I grew up. So with that in mind, I think over the course of my childhood, it was always thinking about how do I leverage what I have, which at the time was only my energy and my knowledge. How do I leverage that and turn that into opportunity? And so I asked the father of the family my mom nannied for, I asked him if I could intern at his marketing agency before I even graduated high school. There was no internship program, but he said, show up to work on Monday. We'll see what we can do. And that was right before university where I was the only freshman with internship experience, which then opened the door to seven internships, which then opened the door to me realizing I don't even want to work for anybody else. I want to be an entrepreneur, which then opened the door to a YouTube channel that I grew for seven years to, you know, a massive audience working for myself full time since 2015. And all of that is really shocking because, again, I, I still see myself as the daughter of the cleaner. And now I have a company called Joe Club. It's a journaling company where I have contractors that work for me. I have assistants. I have corporate clients. Hightower is one of them. I have so many members that join the membership. And I'm just like, wait, hold up. How can this all have happened? And it's been rewriting my money narrative. Because when you come from an immigrant background, the last thing on your mind is like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur traveling the world. Oh, and I hosted a Netflix show during this time as well, like from 2020 to 2021. Wow. I hosted this Netflix show, Traveling the World, where I was able to go to mansions and not clean them for once. But you know, like, that's the journey. Yeah, Joe, I've seen the show. It's awesome. That's probably so crazy, though, growing up and seeing just like two polar opposite sides of the spectrum. You know, I feel like I grew up you know, super, super middle class in the middle of everything, which growing up middle class, you don't really know it as a kid because your parents are just like budgeting. <laughs> Sometimes we'll like go on a trip and money is no object and we buy everything. But then when we get back from the trip and you want to eat out on a Wednesday, you can't. This is why this is episode one, that money narratives that we inherit, back to the word inheritance here, comes directly from how we were raised. And a lot of times it's also passed down generations for better or worse. So if you grew up in the middle, I'm just curious, were your grandparents also in the middle class? Yeah, middle class all around, I'd say. I mean, obviously there was a couple of family members that were better off than others. There was a couple of family members that weren't, um, but I think pretty consistently in the middle. I couldn't have everything I wanted, but I think there was always incentives to get good grades or do your chores and you can get, you know, the little things that you want. Not, not everything, but the little things, you know what I mean? Like, you can't go crazy. Like, we're not going to be splurging every day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, I think everything in moderation. But how do you think your childhood of very balanced, it seems like it was very balanced. How do you think it affected how you see your adult life? Because now, how old are you again? 23? 25. Oh, I'm getting old, Joe. I'm getting old. <laughs> but it's good. We're aging gracefully, like fine wine. I sure hope so. <laughs> You're in the middle of your 20s. What do you see for your money narrative? Are you trying to actively rewrite some things now? One of the biggest things I'm trying to rewrite now in my relationships with my family, with my siblings, is being able to have discussions about money. I think that's probably one of the biggest things growing up that we, we didn't have as much. My parents were, were pretty transparent, but obviously you don't want your kid to know how exactly you're doing financially. So I think having conversations about money, which I mean, to be honest, Joe, sometimes I still get uncomfortable talking about money. Why? It's just a touchy subject. A lot of the times I think it's, it's an isolating conversation, no matter who you're talking to. 
What do you think? I think money is far more psychological than any of us ever really talk about. I feel like, I mean, I could, I could talk a lot about this, which is why we're doing this multi-episode podcast, because there's a lot to talk about. For starters, I think a lot of people connect their financial situations with their sense of self-worth, which is a, a big mistake. Because a lot of it is inherited, like we mentioned. So it's it's unfair. It's like a lot of people are starting behind the start line and a lot of people are starting ahead. And that just compounds after generations and generations, especially as a person of color. I mean, my thing is not just that I'm a person of color. It's the immigration as well, right? Which sets you in a different category because you, you start from behind. My mom always said, if you want to succeed, you have to work four times as hard because you're a woman, you're a person of color, and you're an immigrant. So if you want to be equal to everybody, you work three times as hard. If you want to be better, you got to do four times as much. So that was my money narrative. But I think people are scared of talking about money because they feel money shame. Money shame is real. It's almost like if you have a financial situation or a bad credit score that is unsexy, for lack of a better word, you know, just like an undesirable credit score in the States. That's definitely something that we use to measure our financial health. Even if you're in investments and your stock portfolio plummets, you just feel bad emotionally, which I think Sure. Is natural. But I also think there's a healthy balance of detaching yourself. It's tough, though, as well, because money, it runs our world. You need money to eat. You need money to house yourself, right? Clothe yourself. So if you're in survival, there's no way you could start thinking about thriving. At the very baseline, what I want from this podcast is for us to not only go on our own investigations of our money baggage and unpack a lot of it, but also give tips for people listening to think about both the tangible side of money and the intangible, which would be the psychological relationship with money, because both of those, they go hand in hand. Most people are only thinking about the tangible side of money, which is how much money do you have? How much money do you make? How much debt do you have? But what about what is your definition of enough? Like, sure, you can get a job for $20,000 more, but what is the mental toll and emotional toll it's going to have on you? Because that's worth probably a lot more than the 20K that you're going to get in your bank account, right? Absolutely. I'm fired up, kid. I'm fired I'm up. I'm ready to go. Let's dive in. Here we are. This is Money Baggage Podcast. I'm so excited. It's so good. Money Baggage. We're starting off strong. Can you give us a snapshot of the episodes we're going to be covering? So starting off today with our money stories, we're going to dive in a little bit more. We're going to get into debt, savings, credit cards, student loans, caregiving, budgeting, compound interest, money education, money resources, buying a house, self-investment, money lessons we wish we knew sooner. That's a fun one. Planning your career and finding your sacred work. I wrote those episodes based directly on the questions submitted from my Instagram at Joe underscore Franco. So we're also catering to the listeners and the followers who submit questions because we want this to be an interactive podcast. We want to answer your questions as best as we can. This is by no means money advice. This is not a podcast for money advice. This is more of a discussion. Think of us as your dinner party friends and hopefully giving you some great resources for you to dive in and educate yourself. This is 100% about increasing all of our financial awareness and financial literacy, which is the greatest news of all because this is the kind of podcast I wish existed and now it does and now it does here it is we're gonna talk we're all gonna be friends here none of us are alone we're all in it together i think that's the biggest thing joe do you want to talk scarcity mindset that's always a good one scarcity mindset's a hot topic i i like it yeah it's a good one i i think so too it's a big thing i have a definition for you a scarcity mindset is when you believe resources are limited whether they are or not 
A scarcity mindset causes hyperfixation, leads to short-term coping instead of long-term problem solving, and increases jealousy and stress. Scarcity mindset is real. I remember when we first moved to the States, my mom didn't have, we didn't have any money and it was Christmas time and her boss, the mom and dad of the family who she nannied for, they actually hired the secretary of the marketing agency to dress up like Santa and drop off a bag of gifts for us because we didn't have any gifts and any, we didn't have any like winter clothes. So it's like when you grow up with that level of scarcity where it's basically like charity from a a guardian angel, you're just like, I'm going to take care of all of these toys, all of these clothes. I'm going to hoard things because I don't know when I'm going to get them again. And again, this goes back to money narrative. If you come from a household where you've experienced scarcity, or your parents had just infused in them scarcity mindset, whether you have money or not, you will absorb that. And likely it'll show in in your decisions and it creates a huge amount of anxiety. Like the anxiety is real. I have a hard time thinking about the scarcity mindset because I feel like I go back and forth where I I very much do have it almost 99% of the time, but and it's probably not a good thing, but sometimes I think this scarcity mindset that I have is is kind of a huge motivator for me to work harder, to make more money. Um, I think there's a balance there of staying motivated, but realizing that I have food to eat and I have a place to stay, you know what I mean? So I feel like it's a tough thing, but maybe not always as negative as people say. What do you think? I don't know. I love that take because I cannot unlearn 100% of my scarcity mindset. I call it cheap girl brain because it doesn't matter how much money I have in my bank account, I will look for the discount. I will look for the coupon code. I will look for the bargain. Always. (laughs) How I am, right? Like even my house, I was like, I basically bought a house on clearance. Like I waited for the absolute (laughs) dip in the market. I'm like, now it's time to buy a house. Over the weekend, I was in LA with a friend and we were going to a friend's wedding. And my business, Joe Club, is booming. It's really, I'm so proud of the team and what we're building. It's a journaling company, so I'm still shocked that I can make a really good living promoting something that's genuinely good for people, like investment in their mental wellness. So I'm telling my friend, I'm like, I just closed X, Y, and Z deal, and this is so great, and I'm so excited. And then we go to a diner. And I look at the menu and I'm like, what in the world are these prices? $17 for an omelet? And she's like, Joey, you're the only person that I will ever know who has all of this happening for you, you know, financially abundant, and you don't want to pay $17 for a plate of food. I'm like, no, because it's the principle. I mean, every dollar counts. And I think that might pay into the fact that you were able to buy a house because of partly of that mindset. It might be a hot take, but I think the scarcity mindset isn't as bad as people let it seem. I like that philosophy. I think maybe the the takeaway there is like, you need a healthy dose of scarcity mindset. A healthy dose though, I think it's the awareness when it's blocking you. Because here's the other thing too. So as an entrepreneur, I had to take many risks and there were huge key moments in my life where I had to operate in abundant mindset, which was so hard. It was like, pulling hair, gritting teeth. I remember it was actually probably around the same time as you were in in your life now, maybe two years younger. So I was in New York City. I graduated with a business degree, studied international management. And my vision initially when I went to college, we're going to have a whole college episode, to be honest, because I think you choose your major far too young. We'll talk about it soon, but I, yeah, I have a lot to say about that, but we're in it together. I gotcha. Yeah. We're going to bookmark that one. But anyway, so I knew I had this massive amount of college debt and going into my real life out of college, I I was nervous because I was in scarcity mindset thinking I have $70,000 coming my way, like a ton of bricks. And 
I'm over here trying to pitch a travel channel on YouTube and no one cares. No one is giving me opportunities. I had a business partner, so everything was 50-50. So even if I were to be successful in a very small way, it's still not enough to feed two people, let alone start chipping away the loans. So after college, I had to make a, a really scary decision. I actually went to an old internship boss that I loved so much. And I asked him if I could work for him after graduating. And he had been following what I was doing as an entrepreneur. He was the chief marketing officer of this huge media agency. He's like, Joanna, in normal circumstances, you would get this job in a heartbeat. But you have too much of a promising future as an entrepreneur to be tied down working for anyone. And I'm wow. like, no. Also, yes. <laughs> You're like, no. I know. I know. <laughs> sure. No, but it was horrible because I'm like, my dude, I need the paycheck. It paid off though. It did pay off. But again, in these big, scary, risky moments. So I ended up, I hustled two jobs at a travel management company in the daytime, at a co-working space at night. The travel agency asked me to work full time. This is when I made a huge move. And this was the first step in my career of rewriting scarcity mindset. I turned down this job offer, which was like $45,000, great benefits, traveling around the world. Amazing. But I turned it down and I decided I was going to move to LA where I had no friends, no family, nothing. The industry for YouTubers was there though. I saw people getting brand deals and I went with one carry-on suitcase and one-way ticket and within those three months of living in LA, couch surfing, living in a roach infested apartment, that's where I became an entrepreneur because I had no plan B. But you cannot do something like that if you're stuck in scarcity mindset. And, and that would have been a shame, dude. That would have been a shame. If I let scarcity mindset run my world, none of the things that I was able to create, these big movements of connecting global minds, of this journaling company, of hosting a Netflix show, none of that would have happened if I would have stayed in scarcity mindset. So I have a question for you. Yes. During this you know, transition, what, what kind of things were you doing? What kind of things were going through your mind to get you out of that scarcity mindset? Because you obviously did get out of it, but... I can't imagine taking that kind of leap of faith was easy. Probably a lot going through your mind, you know? I was doing a lot. I think the biggest voice in my head that made me not only turn down the opportunity, but quit and move was that I could almost imagine what my life would be like if I took the opportunity. I could imagine what it would be like. I would be an executive in a few years, most likely running the marketing department, traveling around the world. And that wasn't a bad future. But what I didn't know at all was what would happen if I went to LA and took a chance on myself. I didn't know what that was. Sure. And I think as somebody who grew up outside of my comfort zone, like immigration, being the odd girl out in the classrooms where I was alone, I didn't speak English in it immediately. The unknown was always more comfortable for me totally. in a discomforting way. Like it was almost like discomfort was appealing because I saw how many moments in my life where the discomfort grew me, right? Like without discomfort, I wouldn't speak English. Without discomfort, I wouldn't go to college. Without discomfort, I wouldn't have made the best friends that I have. Without discomfort, I wouldn't have studied abroad in France. So it's like, absolutely. maybe that's what happened. And I think anytime something is uncomfortable to me, I'm mortified of keynote speeches. I signed up for a keynote speaker's training for six months. That is my exercise to combat scarcity mindset. It's always going for the unknowns, going for what scares me because I know in those moments of discomfort is when I'll grow. And the irony is when you grow, your finances also grow because your opportunities grow. Definitely. Yeah. You, you said something that, that kind of stuck with me there is that like, it's kind of the, uh, the term what if, and I think a lot of people think about the what ifs if I, you know, made the decision, but there's never the, the what ifs on that other side. You know what I mean? Like the, I have a comfortable thing, but the, 
positive what ifs rather than, you know, the other side. If people listening are thinking of taking a jump into entrepreneurship or into even renegotiating a salary or to trying to pitch a promotion, you really fully have to believe that there is no other option. Because once you jump, it's like, we're going to find out how to swim today. That's literally what it was. It was like, if you don't know how to swim, honey, better start paddling. And that's where I think the difference in my career happened. Because in 2015, when I took that leap, I never looked back. I, till this day, I haven't ever worked. I haven't had a stable income, which sounds horrif horrifying. No, it does. <laughs> it has increased year over year, which is... You know, last year I was thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, it's been 10 years of me doing this crazy entrepreneurship. When I first started, I thought it would be something I gave one year, two years max. And now I'm a decade in and I can't imagine living any other way. But when you're going into these moments to defeat your own scarcity mindset, you can't fake it. This is not something you can fake. That is a very good point. You, you got to mean it. You got to mean it. Zay, what about you? Tell me, so what is your title at Hightower? Yeah, so I am the uh, communication specialist here. I work on the marketing team with, you know, roughly 20, 25 others. Awesome bunch. We help advisors with their marketing. You know, what I do, I'm, I'm more on the digital side of things, uh, social media, video creation, this wonderful podcast that we're doing right now. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I've been there for just under two years. I think, again, with, with the leap of faith conversation, I, I moved to Chicago not knowing anybody. It's a thousand miles away from home. It was definitely a uh, sink or swim moment. And I've loved it. I think the scarcity mindset has gotten to my head a lot now that I am on my own. I don't have anyone to fall back on. It's, it's really just me or nothing. You know what I mean? So it's, uh, it's definitely been a, a struggle, but I think we're getting there. See, that's such a good point. The no backup plan, this is, again, why it's tougher if you have money baggage that you inherited or you don't have support, you don't have a net, which makes it even harder to take a leap because you're thinking to yourself, if I take a leap and it implodes in my face, I am going to be stranded alone. That is definitely a real fear. And that's a real fear. This is what I want to say, too. Like, whenever I talk about the decisions that I made in my life, I want to be very honest. The fear of taking a leap is less when you're younger because you have less to lose. And I know a lot of friends, not to say that you can't do it as you're older, you can, but it is scarier, right? And you have to break more comforts because let's say you're 35 or 40 and you have a great job and it pays a good salary, but you're miserable and you have children and a house and a mortgage and, and you have more responsibility. The more responsibility you have, the harder it gets. I'm 30 now and I'm thinking the things that I did when I was 20, 21, 22, like I would take a seven-year-old flight and sleep on a park bench and film it and turn it into a YouTube video. And that was what I did like multiple times a year. And I'm just like, who was I, right? Like that's a crazy amount of risk and discomfort. I'm not trying to live like that anymore, but it was <laughs> time and a place. Absolutely. But I always want to encourage people, like if you're miserable, then what about calculated risk? So, Joe, we have a little prompt that I think we're going to be doing every episode. Yes, I am a lover of journaling because it's allowing you to take yourself out of your head. Today's prompt, jot it down, get your paper and pen, take it down in your notes. What is your money narrative? What do you want the arc to be versus what is it that you believe it is now? You inherited money baggage. That money baggage has likely shaped your view of money. How do you want to rewrite that story? 
And as Zave said, what do you want to keep, right? Because there are some values from your money narrative that you want to keep. I want to keep my cheap girl brain. I don't think that's ever going to go away. 100%. Tons of things I want to hold on to. But tons of things I'd like to lose too. Short list. I want to keep you accountable to this. What do you want to let go of when it comes to your money narrative? I need to let go of some of the scarcity mindset for sure. I've been trying to push myself. I think moving to Chicago was one of them of taking those leaps of faith because as you talked about in, in 10, 20 years, I'm, I'm not going to be able to, I'll have other things. So I think one of the biggest things with money outside of money is to kind of keep pushing myself to keep trying new things, keep getting uncomfortable in my social life and my work life while I still have time to figure it out. I think that's one of the biggest narratives, life and money things that I'm trying to figure out right now. How about yourself? You know, for me, well, for everybody, money buys choice, money buys time. And I'm in a stage in my life and my entrepreneurship where I'm delegating a lot and I'm investing heavily in my team members, which is a scary version. I'm like big mama. Like I am making money for the company to pay for people. Right now, the anxiety that I have of making sure we make a bunch of money so that I can pay for them, that is crippling. And I think if I shed a little bit of that anxiety and just focus on the work that I know is good, we'll probably triple our income because that's usually how it goes. Like the minute you let go of the anxiety, the money pours in. It might take some time, but it does come back to you. That mindset situation is is so much more important than people let on. You know what I mean? If, if you're not worried about what you're going to lose and focused on what you're going to get, you know, you'll get it eventually. Yeah. So that's it. You said it beautifully. I want to focus more on what we're going to gain instead of what's coming out of the bank, bank account. And not just in the financial sense of gain, but like in the experience, in the expertise. If I just focus on the product and the experience and bettering it 1% or more every day, then money will money is already coming. But it is something that I struggle with because I just took on a huge amount of overhead by paying facilitators. Right. So it's scary. Like any new chapter, it's scary, but I'm going to let that go. What is the, uh, what's, what's the title of your new chapter right now, Joe? Like big entrepreneur mama. <laughs> I love that. I love it. <laughs> How about you? Oh, I think uh, two quotes on each side that says adulting. I think that's where I'm at right about now. <laughs> the quotation marks. Adulting. <laughs> I love it. I know we're all faking it till we make it. That's actually something else that helped me take risks in my life, in my career, when I realized like no one really knows what they're doing. So I'm going to live my best life and at least try to carve the best life for myself. Totally. Because if everybody doesn't know, then what are we doing here? You hit me at heart there. I, I totally feel that. I think the the older I get and the more I learn, I don't know, I go back and forth between like, do I still not know what I'm doing? Or maybe I just haven't realized that maybe I'm starting to know what I'm doing a little bit. You know what I mean? But honestly, Joe, it feels if I feel the same that I did five years ago. So let's talk about this Q&A. Every episode, we will source some questions from the audience who DM me on my Instagram account. We're going to go down the questions. Again, this is not financial advice, but it is some facts and it is some just discussion about your questions. But these questions are juicy and you probably have some of these questions as well. So the first question is, why doesn't school teach about finances? Did you learn about financial literacy in your school? I did not. And, and you know what? I, I do wish I did. I think I had a, a decent amount of teaching from family members, friends, but, but nothing that would really stick to how life is now. What, what about you? 
No, no, I don't remember learning anything at all from school. I went to business school and I didn't learn. I mean, I took a finance course that I may or may not have failed when I was studying abroad, but it didn't count on my transcript because it was abroad. You know, one of the best things that I learned in, in college, though, was there was a class called quantitative business analysis, and I learned how to make formulas in Excel that I still use today to do my financial sheets. I never learned about finances in school, but I always wrote it down in my journal. I would write my weekly chart of like how much money did I need to make and how much money was I actually making. And then I would find odd jobs to hustle for the difference because again, I didn't have a backup plan. But no, I never learned about financial literacy in school. So I have a crazy fact for you. As of 2022, 22.7% of high school students have guaranteed access to personal finance courses. That's not a ton, less than a quarter in 2018. That percentage was 16.4. Slowly but surely, things are changing in schools, but I think it should be taught. I'll, I'll tell you my opinion first, but I feel like it's, it's tricky having a bunch of teenagers in a classroom not knowing their financial situations. You might know some of them, but everyone's different. So I think there's you know tension in the room with different financial situations, with different um, dynamics in high school, which, which could create a whole other bag of worms. You know what I mean? What are, what are your thoughts, Joe? I think it should be taught in schools as early as kids can count. And I think it should be entrepreneurially driven. So you're not really thinking about your personal finances from home in the, in the classroom. Maybe you are, but I don't know. I think what would be really fun is if I'm about to start like a program like this for kids, just a business program for kids to learn how to manage like overhead costs and what is a profit and do you invest in something to return that into something else, right? Like how do you actually learn the game of money through entrepreneurship. I started learning about financial literacy because I opened the school store in my high school. I was the president of this business club. <laughs> hustling since day one. Dude, hustling since day one. Yeah, there were only three people in the club and I was like, I'll be the president. So nervous, which is why I did it because it scared me. And then I learned, I learned that you need to go to the grocery store and how much is stock and how much do you have to price things to turn a profit and how do you pay your staff and how do you give incentive? Like I learned all of that when I was 16, 17 and that knowledge translates to everything that translates to my personal finances because I'm like, if I'm buying a new computer, how am I going to turn that into money? How am I going to turn that into an investment as opposed to just like a sunk cost? So I do think it should be taught in school in a fun, dynamic way. But here's my problem with financial literacy in the homes is that if you grow up in a home with money, you will be speaking about finances at the dinner table. If you grow up in a house without that level of knowledge with money, you're likely going to learn by the pain that it causes on your family. I have friends who grew up in the opposite end of the spectrum with a lot of money, and they were learning how to invest stocks when they were 13. I learned about money with this friend when I was in college. Whereas like what I remember from my mom was sitting there with 27 different credit card bills trying to pay one with the other. And I just remember being like, I don't know how to get from that story to the healthy, nurturing relationship with money where you look at money as a tool and not as something that drags you down. Where else did you start learning about money? What a great question, Zave. <laughs> I'm a podcaster. <laughs> You're a podcaster, dude. Where did I first start learning about money? So when I became an entrepreneur full-time 2015, I had to really look in my finances on a daily basis. 
not every entrepreneur is like this. Some people get anxious about it. But I was always like, okay, I just need to look at the facts. If we're not making enough money, I need to know so we could proactively solve this problem. So that lasted for a few years. And, and then when we were at a place where survival was already taken care of, I'm like, okay, now is the time for me to start learning about investments. You know, you hear about it there and here and there. And you're just like, what is it? What is investing? What does this even mean? Is this something for me? And then I straight up just Googled like best books on investing, best books on money. What do rich people do with their money? And this was me just on a research project. No one assigned me this task. I was doing it myself. And I picked up a bunch of really powerful books. And I think that was around 2017. I began investing in stocks, you know, and investing in like ETFs and stuff on my own, having a little bit of history because as months would go by, I would see how the markets were moving. I would see how my investments were doing. I started learning what, what it all was, like observing the language in action while looking at these different articles and reading books and listening to podcasts. We're in an age now where there's no excuse. There's so much free material out there that you can get your knowledge. It is the best time in history to, if you want to learn about something, you can. You, you can pick up your phone. You can search so much. You can watch so many videos. I really thought I was going to be a finance major when I first went into college. So I, I definitely the type of person that either does something all the way or not at all. So I started reading books. I started asking people. I started, you know, Googling stuff. And I think that's more of on you know, personal finance, but I think just from like a budgeting and day-to-day -day spending standpoint, a lot of that was, came from, you know, my dorm mates in college. We were, none of us learned it in high school. None of us had a bunch of teaching growing up. And I think doing it together was kind of the best mindset to do it for. And honestly, Joe, I'm still figuring it out. I think I've come a long way since uh, 2016. Humans gravitate towards people who are similar to them. Right, which actually is terrible for socioeconomic equality because what ends up happening is people with money will gravitate naturally. They might not even know that you have money, but it's like how you're dressed or where you are, like geographically where you are, where you where you meet, or you know, who you know in common. That will usually connect similar people in, in a pool of either money or not as much. And that compounds the scarcity of knowledge. It's called homophily. There's a sociological term for this. I looked this up. It comes from the Greek words homo, which means the same, and phili, which means friends. So as humans, we gravitate towards people who are similar to us. So something that I always love is going into a room and looking for an unlikely friendship because those are more beneficial than we ever think of. Homework assignment, everybody go find an unlikely friend. Easier said than done, but I, I, I totally agree with you. I think uh, we, yeah, in college, a lot of the things that we had in common were, were super similar, but we all had our own money baggage and a lot of, of the learning started from learning what not to do through some of them um, and vice versa. Well, it's like having a money support group. That's also another thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, we all need money support groups out there. And I see this in entrepreneurship too. I have a, a group chat. I have multiple group chats of people that I've met and they're entrepreneurs and we just like share knowledge. It's all about that knowledge share. It's scary because again, financial literacy and finances is something people are scared of talking about, but you get more when you give. What I've learned is that just being honest, like, here's what it is. I'm not scared of telling you these numbers because I want you to win because there's enough for all of us to win. And if I tell you like, oh yeah, I quoted this for a brand deal. I'm not worried that I won't get that because I told you, I want you to get that too. We are abundant. Uh, should we uh, jump into another question? Yes. This one's good. So 
What kind of strategies do we have to make peace with money trauma? Are there psychology tips on this? How do we deal with this personally? Well, we are not trained psychologists, so we can't give you professional advice. I always lean into journaling. Some things to remember, it's like you are not your financial situation. Remembering that this often was inherited, that a lot of this may or may not be a direct causal reaction to your actions. And also thinking about your own agency. Like we all have choices that we can make every day. The choices you're making today directly impact your future self. So as I've documented my whole journey in my journals, it's been very clear that me saving that money 10 years ago allowed me a little bit more freedom today. All of those habits of not splurging allowed me to buy my house in full and not have to worry about rent. And so you just learn this relationship. It's I always like to think about my multiple timelines, like past Joe, present Joe, and future Joe. And money is a relationship with time because you need to think about your future self because that is who you're treating by taking actions today. And that seems overwhelming, but I think it could be simpler if we break it down into micro habits and micro decisions. Like whenever you're about to make a decision financially, you should ask yourself, is this immediate gratification worth the loss of some down the line opportunity or freedom? Because a lot of people want to buy the nice car, the nice house, and they're thinking of immediate gratification. And then that joy fades away. And then the stress hits when the bill comes. And then it's like a ball of stress. So I don't know. Everybody has a different money language, which we'll get into throughout these episodes. I want to buy my freedom to choose. So that means I will withhold some decisions today that are more frivolous so that I can buy myself more freedom. Are you big on like goal setting? My goal is not to have goals. Ironically, my goal is to have habits and to move projects along consistently because this is a marathon. It's not a sprint, boo. It's tough. Okay. Well, my question to you is what is your money language? Are you a saver or a spender? Oh, I think the answer to those questions is yes, Joe. <laughs> I've gotten much better. I will say the older I get, the more I want to save. And, and again, with this whole past, present, future thing, I think the stuff that I'm spending money on in the point that I'm at in life now, I'm doing for 16 year old Zave. I'm buying the stuff that I wanted in college and couldn't afford. But the older I get, the uh, the smarter I get. How would you say your, your money language is? I'm definitely a saver and an investor. If I buy anything, I'll find a way to make it an investment. Like down to the lipstick I wear. I'm like, can I find an affiliate link for this? <laughs> like, <Sure>. Literally, <laughs> I bought a treadmill and my game was, can I make enough money in affiliate link? promoting a language learning software that I love and I use while I'm running to pay off the treadmill. And I then did and made tons of money by just learning. And no kidding. Yeah, it's like an investment mindset. I can't not think like that. It's fun for me. I think I could take a page out of your book. I think we all have creative solutions when it comes to our money. I had to be creative because again, all I had was my energy, my knowledge and clever creativity. So I'm like, how do I combine my wants with my needs? I want to run. I want to learn languages. I need to make money to pay off this treadmill. I created this like silly little target. And then I'm like, cool, there's a way to do this. Same thing with like, I want to make a travel channel on YouTube and I want to get paid to travel. How am I going to do this? Make 
content consistently enough to grow an audience to then work with marketing departments and create campaigns. And eventually, at first, it was only exchanges for hostel stays and flights, but then it became something I got paid to do. So then I learned how to make money while traveling. Then it's like, I want to write and I want to create communities and I want to build businesses that actually really change people's lives and connect global thinkers. How am I going to do that? I created a whole journaling company from scratch with a format that didn't exist. So I love a good creative problem solving. And, and you just get it done, right? And this is episode one here. Um, so what are we going to get done here for this Money Baggage podcast, Joe? This is We're just getting started. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be my favorite time of the week. I'm so excited <laughs> to do this with you, Zave. You're stellar. We're in it together. Slide up in my DMs at Joe underscore Franco and let us know how you thought this episode went. Also, submit your suggestions for what topics you'd like us to cover. Don't forget to rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. A big shout out to Hightower Advisors, who is sponsoring this podcast and bringing financial literacy to everyone who cares to listen. I'm grateful in their investment in this because we're on a journey together to take care of this money baggage. We're unpacking it, baby. Until next time. See you soon. Bye. This podcast is a simulation and is for educational purposes only. Joe Franco is presenting the information in this podcast in her capacity as a consultant to Hightower Holding LLC and its affiliates and subsidiaries and not as an actual client of Hightower Advisors LLC. The material provided in this podcast is prepared and researched by its author and does not service as an endorsement or a reflection of the views of Hightower Holding LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower does not make any representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of the information contained herein. Hightower Advisors LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC member FNIRA SIPC.